Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper. There's a great start. And Mick Mitt Masque on the extreme outside is about the first out. Yagler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front. Jack McBride desperately can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit to Juggler. This Iron podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. Racing New South Wales and the Australian Turf Club cling to the flimsy hope that a crowd of 5,000 may be permitted to attend Royal Randwick on Everest Day. In the meantime, a little piece of racing history comes into the equation on Saturday the 2nd of October when the Tab Epsom gets top billing with its new prize money structure. The historic mile makes a quantum leap from 1 million to 1.5 million. On the same day, the Heineken Metropolitan will carry 750,000, as will the Dali flight stakes, the final leg of the Princess series. October the 9th, the highlight will be the 2,000 metre spring champion stakes, the race that sometimes produces Derby hopefuls for the following autumn. Saturday the 16th, and the racing world will be focused on the Tab Everest, while Saturday the 23rd, will see the inaugural running of The Invitation, a brand new race worth $2 million for the Phillies and Mares. Against all odds, the 2021 Spring Racing Carnival moves on. Few professional sports people have a more regimented lifestyle than the modern-day professional jockey. For some, it means strict diets and tedious hours in the sauna. For most, it means early morning track work, endless travelling to race meetings and the ability to cope with the inevitable disappointments. Those jockeys who sometimes wonder if it's all worth it should take some inspiration from the life and times of Harry Coffey. The 25-year-old has no weight problems, but he rides a lot of track work, he drives huge mileage to race meetings from his Swan Hill base and he deals with problems that most jockeys could never contemplate. Harry was diagnosed at birth with cystic fibrosis, a life-threatening disorder that damages the lungs and digestive system. Sufferers need to observe strict guidelines and remain intensely focused on their regular treatments. Family and friends were stunned when Harry chose the demanding lifestyle of a professional jockey, and few of them expected him to last. Eleven years later, he is still confounding medical science. He's ridden well over 600 winners, several at stakes level, and one coveted Group 1, the 2017 Sweps Oaks in Adelaide, on suppressor. Some of Victoria's leading stables utilise his services He's extremely popular with all sections of the industry and he's already proven to be a source of great inspiration to young people living with similar difficulties. I'm delighted to present a long overdue chat with a remarkable young bloke. Harry Coffey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. Uh, Good to be on and not a bad um, introduction. You made me sound all right. I thought that come across okay. <laughs> <laughs> you certainly did. You deserve uh, all of it and it's all true. Now, Harry, just looking at your work schedule over the last couple of months, you've been all over the place. You've ridden winners at Swan Hill, Mildura, Bendigo, Warwick Nabeel, Warrnambool, Donald, 
and a couple at Flemington. You don't mind travelling. Yeah, that's right. I was lucky that you could uh, throw in at the end a couple at Flemington, lest mm. uh, you'd be known as a country pumpkin out in the bush because we're at all ends of the state there in Victoria. But uh, that's my go. That's uh, my bread and butter. Jump in the car and uh, drive as far away as possible because a lot of people don't like, um, you know, to go too far out of out of their way to drive for rides. But uh, mm. sometimes the further the trip, the uh, better the opportunity and Mm. I make the most of that, so I'm not frightened of a drive, and um, I'll go anywhere to ride a winner. So yeah. I'm uh, pretty pretty lucky that I got that mindset, and it's it's actually got me a long way. I uh, I get to ride uh, for some of the biggest stables when uh, you know they're they're preferred um, number, you know, top seated riding riders that they usually um, would like to use. You know, they don't want to drive that extra way. Where yeah. I'm happy to happy to, and I turn up with bells on. Yeah, sure do. Now, can I ask you about Azar's great run in the Group 1 last Saturday week, the Rupert Clark? He ran fourth, beaten only a length by Sierra Sue, and he was at odds of $61. Were you surprised? Yeah, he surprised me, that's for sure. I, um, we, You know, it was a brief moment when he turned into the straight and um, I sort of fought a few off that I thought, oh, here we go, Um this is this is this is going to be big, and then uh, they sort of flew down the outside, and he actually fought on pretty good, and he tried to go with them, but mm. um, he, he he just couldn't match it. But you know, I, I would have loved to have ran third, and I suppose if you ran run third, you wouldn't say you'd love to have ran second. So yeah. fourth was a really good effort, and the three that um, beat him obviously were better on the day, but there was three horses behind him, um, probably. Bo Rossa and Behemoth. Yeah, they're three. They're, they're, they're three really nice, you know, Group One horses, and, and he beat them on the day. So mm. really good run. Proud of his efforts, and I was uh, lucky enough to give him a fairly good steer. Oh, you rode him perfectly. Had a lovely run in the race. He's trained by the Hayes brothers. I hope they can find a race for him during the spring carnival, just a little away from the upper echelon. There's got to be a decent race there somewhere for him. Yeah, well, that's right. I, I, I think they might be thinking the Turak um, mm. in a couple of weeks, but in saying that, he'll probably be, probably bump into a similar field again, mm. and he and he just needs everything to go his way in them top races for him to be a chance. And as you seen the other day, when things go his way, he can, he can put in a real blistering run, and mm. maybe who knows, lightning might strike twice, and uh, we might end up in front uh, when things fall our way. Mm. Do you think he'll stay on Azar? Um, I think he's going to get a light weight in the Turak. So I, um, yeah, I'm a fairly good. I'm in the box seat for that ride, but mm. uh, it is a fair. It is a fair chunk away still, and a fortnight's a long way, long time in racing, especially this time of year. Uh, a lot changes, and you see all the rider bookings and engagements mm. early for some of the bigger races, and it, and it actually amazes you sometimes because you've got bookings for you know two months away and you think, mm. well, a lot changes in a week, let alone two months. So mm. it's an interesting time of year and everyone's always on edge trying to get rides and that. But as I said, uh, things change a lot, um, especially in a short short space of time. You did actually move a little closer to Melbourne a few years ago when you relocated to Bendigo. You stayed there for two years, but you found yourself missing your family and more importantly, missing Swan Hill. Yeah, that's right. So I, um, I've lived in Swan Hill most of my life, but there was just a time where 
the travel became really difficult when I was sort of going through a stage of my career where I wasn't getting the success that I would have liked. And as an apprentice growing up in Swan Hill, you'd, you'd drive to Melbourne and you'd ride winners because you were claiming um, mm. and and that claim got you a long way. And when, you, when you're when riding winners, you can drive through brick walls. You'll drive all night. But uh, when the claim went and I was sort of poking around in the city on rides that, you know, that couldn't really win or even in the bush, you, you know, you'd go somewhere and have six rides and, and not get a winner. Um, the drive home really, really mentally tough. And mm. phys- physically, I was a wreck all the time just getting up and driving to the races. So... Myself and uh, my partner, Taylor, we decided to move to Bendigo. And um, originally Melbourne was spoken about, but um, both Taylor and myself are really family-orientated people. And Melbourne's four hours from Swan Hill. And with how busy that I am, I wanted um, it to be – I thought it would be a little bit far for Taylor to come home and see her family all the time. Exactly. Um, so, So we chose Bendigo instead which is uh, halfway between Melbourne and Swan Hill. And mm. if I was to jump in the car and um, go riding for the day, well, it was going to be easy for Taylor to, to come back up to Swan Hill or mm. for um, her mum to come visit her in Bendigo rather than do a big trip to Melbourne. So mm. Bendigo is where, uh, where we decided to set up. And it was great for myself and Taylor as well. She did a um, TAFE course in Bendigo while we lived there and, um, I, you know, did a lot of riding. I, I nearly rode every day while I was there, and mm. I really went to work. I, I really went to work and 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 really tried hard to just ride at every country meeting possible, and mm. just set in stone that I wanted to be. Um, you know, when uh, when a person thought I'm sending a horse to Wodonga to win, who, who will be there? Oh, Harry Coffey will be there, and mm. on the other spectrum, Warnable and. You know, they're eight hours from each other, but I wanted people to know I was there and yeah. Bendigo provo- provided a very central location for that and mm. um, it was it was two years well spent, but in the end, um, every day off I had, I noticed I was back in Swan Hill and mm. um, both Taylor and I missed our, family, our families and um, when we moved back to Swan Hill, I noticed I was a lot happier. So mm. that's how it ended up and wouldn't change a thing. You and Taylor live on a 10-hectare property on the outskirts of Swan Hill. You keep a couple of ponies there. And you tell me Taylor likes horses, but you couldn't call her a racing addict. No, she's not big on racing, um, but she does love horses. She probably, yeah, she'd love horses more than I do. Um, and she, she, she battles to um, understand how... I don't love horses as much as she does. She goes, you work with them every day and mm. make all this money out of them. And she says, I get nothing out of it and I love them more than you do. But, <laughs> um, yeah, she's, she's, uh, it, she doesn't really, the racing doesn't really phase her too much. And no. whether you ride, um, whether I ride win, winners or losers, um, she's always, she's always here and, uh, she's back here on the farm having fun and, it's probably been good for me because at the end of the day, most riders, everything is about racing and the and the racing industry. But um, having Taylor's allowed me to have a little bit of an outlet away from that. And mm. if I don't want to deal with racing, sometimes you know, um, mm. we she can she can provide that, and she it's not the be end all for mm. her. You were diagnosed at birth with cystic fibrosis, but you tell me your childhood was relatively normal regarding your education and your involvement in sport? 
Yeah, well, that's right. I, I just, I thought, I thought it was normal anyway because I didn't know any different. Um, mm-hmm. And I've got awesome parents. They've done a brilliant job with me. And mum and dad, they never ever, you know, said no, no to me doing something. And um, I, and because of that, I lived a very normal life. I played football in the juniors in Swan Hill. I kept mm-hmm. up with everybody else. I went to school. Um, and, you know, even though I had cystic fibrosis and even though my body didn't allow me to do things as easy as everybody else, I still did it. And mm. um, because of that, I considered myself having a really normal childhood. And, you know, it, it'd be exciting to go to, to a kid's house on a weekend and have a sleepover or it'd be exciting to go um, to yeah. the footy in a, with a carload of mates to play, you know, an hour away in juniors. And mm. I never missed any of that. And I was really fortunate that I had – Mum and dad who, you know, would do anything for me and extremely protective, but they didn't put me in bubble wrap or cotton wool. They no. allowed me to experience being a kid and even though I had this terrible um, condition, mm. um, they they handled that with um, such oh, – I'm amazed with how they handled it and yeah. they allowed me to grow up normally while keeping me healthy and uh, – there's a fine line um, to getting that right and somehow they did it and mm. I'll be forever thankful because not only have they made me the human I am but they've allowed me to continue to be healthy and well because the mm. early years when you're growing up with cystic fibrosis is absolutely crucial to staying healthy and mm. somehow my parents did that and I'll be forever grateful. Mm. A great tribute to two wonderful people, Harry. I'm really pleased to hear you. Uh, acknowledge their wonderful efforts and their wisdom on our podcast this morning. Can we have a look at the day-to-day management of cystic fibrosis, which broadly speaking affects the cells that produce mucus, uh, sweating and digestive juices? Now, I read somewhere the other day that you have to take somewhere between 20 and 30 pills a day do you mind telling us what job those pills <coughs> perform, Harry? Uh, what are they? Yeah, there's a bit going on. Mm. Um, if you picked me up and threw me across the room, I'd probably rattle. I've always got pills going on inside me. But uh, <laughs> it's 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 just never-ending, really. Like every day you get up and you just, there's, there's your health. Like um, mm. you're continually taking tablets. Um, you're continually... Working out if, you know, are you a little bit worse than what you were yesterday? Am I a little bit better? Um, mm. And, you know, the, the, you, you might catch a little cold or a little sniffle or hay fever and, um, you know, you're sort of hoping, oh, geez, I hope this infection doesn't turn into something big and it knocks me for six. So mm. there's always this maintenance and work that continues to go on and keeping me well. Um, as I said before, my parents, especially my mum, like my mum could have been a nurse and with how well she looked after me as a kid and mm. you almost when you get sick now, you almost feel like you're ripping you're ripping your parents off because they did such a good job to get you so far and then mm. when you grow up and you're an adult, you know, it's sort of up to you and yeah. you don't want to really let them down by, you know, undoing all their hard work. So mm. as I said, it's a continued day to day process, tablets going in, treatment, um I do half an hour of physiotherapy every day where I blow into a, a machine um, that's a ventilator. 
Mm. Um, and that just supplies um, oxygen into a nebulizer that blows saline into my lungs. The saline goes into my lungs and gets into all the uh, little cells into the lungs and, and breaks down the mucus. Mm. Um, and then the nebulizer that I'm blowing into has a resistor on it so that when I blow out, it's putting pressure on my lungs to make them work, which then makes me cough. So the saline goes in to break up the mucus to make it easier to move mm. and the pressure on the resistor on the way out makes me want to cough. Mm. I do 10 sets of 10 and uh, try to move the mucus that's in my lungs that is deep down um, out. I cough it up into a cup. I do that for about half an hour every day. Now, the racing industry is pretty um, busy, so the odd day I might miss because mm. – you have to get up, ride track work somewhere, then go to trials, then you're back in the car for race day and mm. you just don't have enough time in the day to um, to get that physio done. Um, but it, it is really important that it has to be done because if I don't do it, the mucus that that physio hasn't removed stays in my lungs for that day. Mm. Um, and, and your normal activities that you do in the day, you can't move it and get rid of it, out, get it out and – if that mucus stays in there, well, then I'm more prone to infection because it goes old and yuck and mm. um, it takes up cells in my lungs and it mm. affects my mm. lung function. So that's one aspect. That's half an hour every day out of my life that it needs to happen. Where do you um, do that? so Harry? important. At, is that at, at a local clinic close to home? No, I've just got a little machine in my house. Oh, um, yes, you just watch yeah. TV, play a bit of PlayStation or I'll do my form. Mm. Um, and then also I, I bought a vehicle. It's got a power point in it so that I can hook it in, mm. um, hook the ventilator into that. But um, I need someone to drive while I do it or I have to get yeah. to the races, you know, 20 minutes early and, and have a go at it before then. So, mm. um, you know, you learn to live with these things and you learn to find time and make ways for it to happen. But there's stages of your life where you just think, oh, I'm too busy for medication or I'm too busy for my treatment. Mm. And you just drop the ball and, you know, you might go four days without doing it, but it bites you on the ass, you know, you really regret it. And, <laughs> I'll bet. Um, you'll yeah. be fighting out the finish and then coughing your guts up after it, thinking, geez, I wish I had done my physio this morning. So oh, really? it's one yeah. aspect in uh, life that I can't change and um, it is a hassle but it has to be done and it, it, it goes towards me being normal. Like that mm. airway clearance gives me a normal set of lungs for the day where if they're, mm. they're not clear, well, then it's a lot harder to keep up with everyone else. And, oh, uh, yeah. Back to the tablet side of things, you know, I have a lot of tablets and because my digestive system doesn't work properly, I don't produce enzymes. Yeah. Um, so every time I eat, I have to take tablets to replace them enzymes um, just so that my body knows what to do with mm. all the proteins and fats because that's what enzymes are for. And mm. um, I've done that ever since I was born, even when I was a baby mm. and you can't physically take tablets because you're a baby. Um, they used to break the tablets up into like – apple mash sort of stuff and feed it through feed it through that. So that's never been anything that's changed. I've just always taken tablets every time I eat and mm. then I'm on all sorts of other different tablets as well as in um, vitamins, antibiotics, mm. and I'm also on another new tablet that's a gene modifier yeah. called Sim, Simdeco. That's the one and I'm interested in. What does it do? Yeah, well, it's the most interesting tablet of all and it's really exciting what goes on now with science and health and that. And this is a, a drug that's just come out um, and it's a gene modifier and it makes my body 
um, think that it's got the genes that it's needed to be normal. Um, and I take one tablet in the morning and one tablet at night of Simdeco. Mm. Needs 10 grams of fat to work, to make it work, to make it kick into gear. So I have it with either breakfast or dinner. Mm. Um, and, and it makes my body think that I've got the gene to not have cystic fibrosis. So yeah, my body then goes on and just it just thinks it's working all that little bit better. Like I'm mm. not working normal i'm not i'm not going along fine but it's just making my body think oh yeah well that that does sort itself out a little bit and everything just works a little bit better and since i've been on the gene modifier it's uh it's cut my enzyme intake by half so that Mm. means my digestive system's working uh you know a a lot better yeah yeah and when i do my airway clearance of a morning with my physio Mm. Um, it's a lot easier for me to clear the mucus because my lungs mm. are healthier and they're a lot um, they're a lot more uh, clear and it's easier to bring the mucus to the to the middle and then and then mm. to clear it up. So mm. that's what uh, this gene modifier tablet's doing and it's amazing stuff. And mm. I've I've said to the doctor, I said, mate, I'm amazed by this. This is making my life so much easier. And he said, well, it's kind of like buying an iPhone. There's always an update to come, so uh, <laughs> you uh, you just got to hang in there and keep 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 propping yourself up because yeah. uh, we'll keep bringing out stuff that will make your life easier. But you just got to hold up your end of the bargain to uh, mm. to make sure that you're uh, here to have it. So mm. that's what goes on. And as I said, it's a day to day thing. But um, if I don't do it, I won't be here to be mm. uh, to experience it. So that's the way it is. Your dad, Osti, started his professional training career in the late 1980s, but prior to that he'd been a farrier and from all reports a pretty good one. Does he still bang a shoe on now and again? Yeah, he does He does most of our shoeing, yeah. So um, it's something that he's good at, takes a lot of pride in. Um, I, I'd say he'd tell you that he was better at it as a young boat than what he is now. Um, mm. But... Uh, yeah, the farriers, they work hard. I'm glad Dad taught me how to ride a horse rather than shoe one because uh, I got the good end of the bargain there. <laughs> you sure but, did, particularly, yeah. particularly on a stinking hot day. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, they do a good job. But, yeah, like back to Dad, like um, just had horses around us our whole lives because of him and Mum's not heavily into horses much. Um, mm. But it's, it's funny, I've got two really strong aspects of my life, Mum's been the nurse that's kept me kept me healthy and well and kept my life in check and made probably been a part of all my good decision making in life with everything. And mm. then on the other side is dad's giving given me this um racing passion that I've got and I love and mm. um as I said taught me how to ride a horse and kick start my journey in the racing industry and um I've been lucky to have both mum and dad and um as I said two very different uh, aspects they bring to mm. making me who I am, but two very important parts, and I wouldn't change them for the world. Mm. Dad works between fifteen and twenty horses. That seems to be his preferred number these days. Yeah, that's right. Um, have about fifteen to twenty. Mm. Need a lot more fast ones, but so does everyone. <laughs> um, it we can have a lot more. Um, if I'm not busy, but sometimes I get busy with riding and that, and mm. then there's sort of a, a, a track work rider down or a man down, and mm. um, where if I'm home a lot, um, 
you know, we can have probably another 10 and manage it. But, uh, mm. yeah, 20 is a nice number for us. And um, as I said, we need a lot more fast ones. But I get a lot of enjoyment out of working with Dad and I take a real interest in the training side of how it's all run and how a horse preps up, um, especially in the early stages of a preparation, I'm amazed mm. with uh, how far a horse can come. And um, it's something I really enjoy and I love spending time with Dad doing it. And uh, mm. we're sort of lucky that our jobs and professions we can do together and yeah. we love it and we get enjoyment out of it. And, uh, mm. you know, there's nothing better than – putting, you know, five unraced horses on the truck and heading off to the trials together every morning because uh, until you find out they're all slow, it's a pretty enjoyable job. (laughs) (laughs) You've got one younger brother, Sam, who likes horses uh, well enough and he can handle most of the stable duties, but he's gone in a totally different direction. He works in the accountancy business. Yeah, that's right. And uh, Sam's just started being an accountant this year and Back to me saying, um, back to me saying that we probably have thirty and work if I was home all the time. If mm. Sam didn't go and be an accountant, um, if he had stayed with Dad, we probably could have had fifty and work. He's really, really good, mm. um, good, good horseman, very calm, and horses behave well for him. He's not big on the riding, um, mm. but he's a very handy man to have on the ground. And yeah. While COVID was going on, he was doing his university from home because they couldn't go to uni. Mm. Um, and, and while that was happening, Sam was working for Dad of a morning and then go and do all his uni stuff online on the computer. And um, while we had Sam doing that, it was probably the best the horses ever went. Um, and, and it took a lot off Dad's shoulders too. Like Sam would just turn up and the stable would nearly would nearly run itself for some reason. So um, couldn't speak more highly of Sam, but I was never going to talk him out of going and being an accountant rather than be a uh, horse trainer. I think he'll learn up. He'll end up earning a lot more money uh, counting people's money rather than uh, spending <laughs> people's money. So, yeah. but uh, but uh, I'm really lucky. Me and Sam are really close, and it also goes back to that thing where I said, like me and Dad love getting in the truck and heading off to the trials together. Well, when we get home that night, you know, Sam's sitting there with a coke or a beer and asks us all how they've trialed. And he's actually usually watched them by then too and telling us which ones to get rid of. So we're really, yeah, we're yeah. really lucky that um, we're really lucky that we all that we all love it and we all understand each other and we're all pretty realistic too. 29th of October 2010 was the date of your first winning ride. It was a 1,000-metre maiden on a horse called Sauce, trained by a bloke who would go on to be one of your truly great supporters, Darren Weir. You're probably aware, Harry, that was the only race Sauce ever won. Yeah, it was. It was, it was a big day um, when Sauce come down the outside at Witchy Proof. Mm. Um, I think Darren had runners Derby Day too in Melbourne uh, the same day, but um, he was up there for my uh, first winner and, yeah, the weird team just had the one horse in and he was there himself. He owned Source himself. Mm. Um, him and Dad, very good mates, have been for a long time um, and sort of suppose it was always going to be destiny that I'd end up riding for Darren and mm. to ride my first winner for him. I would have loved to ride it for Dad, um, but um, – you know, Darren was probably the second best person to ride it for. Of course, yeah. And 
as a kid growing up, you know, I'd always see a lot of Darren. He'd come and visit Dad or we'd go visit him. And, um, yeah, he, he was well aware of me and the stuff that I'd gone through. And um, when I started riding, he said to Dad, look, I'm happy to give him a go and support him, but I won't be able to teach him to ride with my clients and that. You'll have to teach him to ride. And mm. if he can ride and then he does the work, well, then we'll use him. And um, the first winner was a bit of a sit and steer, but um, what eventuated after that, rode mm. for him for 10 years. You did. Um, he was very good to me. I rode a lot of good horses and mm. it's probably made me the rider I was. That I am, sorry, not was. It's yeah. probably made me the rider that I am, and I'm, mm. I'm very lucky that I uh, had the weir, the weir factor the whole way through. He also trained your first city winner. That was about 15 months after the win on source at Witchy Proof. It was a mare's race at Mooney Valley on my option, and to this day she's one of your favourites. Yeah, my option. Um, and, and I think my option and source... They were both sitting steers, um, and both in Darren's colours, the maroon and white, the maroon and uh, white colours. So, um, got photos of both of them hanging up. Um, actually, in my brother's room, Sam, he keeps all our racing photos. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, and it, it was funny. I say it was a sitting steer and um, a really good chance. Um, it was a Friday night at the Valley under lights and, and me growing up, I had a fascination with Moody Valley on a Friday night. Mm. I just I just loved it and I've always said in all interviews and that I do, well, a lot of people love to sit down and watch footy on a Friday night. Well, mm. In the coffee household, we'd sit down and watch the Friday night Moody Valley races. It was a real, um, mm. it was a real, it was a real thrill for us and uh, I don't know, coincidental or not, um, Moody Valley on that Friday night that my option won. Mum and Sam, I think, you know, they let Sam have the day off school and um, we shot down to Mooney Valley. So I had mum, dad and Sam there and mm. they were there for my first winter in Melbourne and it was pretty special. Dad got emotional in the interview and, um, yeah, when you ride winners like that in the moment, it doesn't really hit home what's going on. Mm. But uh, looking back, um, it was pretty awesome and mm. it was amazing to have mum, Sam and dad there with me. Brilliant stuff. Harry, we'll just pause for a moment to clear a commitment on the podcast. When we come back, we'll talk about that wonderful, thrilling, unforgettable Group 1 courtesy of Darren Weir at the 2018 Adelaide Carnival. Back with Harry Coffey after this. Trainers strive to have horses spot on for race day. Fuel cells up, the right mental state, the right fitness levels. Equally important is the horse's capacity to recover quickly from racing and track work. The aim is to give owners every opportunity to win optimum prize money by keeping a horse in training for as long as possible. High Gain Recuperate is a powerful blend of electrolytes, B-group vitamins and vitamin E in paste form which can be administered after fast work and in the days leading up to a race to assist recovery. 30ml of Recuperate drawn from the 500ml bulk pack is the economical alternative to individual electrolyte and vitamin paste syringes. High Gain Recuperate powers performance and recovery. Visit the High Gain website and use promo code johntap.racing to receive 15% off your next Recuperate purchase. Darren gave you a wonderful opportunity in 2018 when he put you on a filly called Suppressor in two races during the carnival. You'd won a kinded maiden on her some weeks before 
and then Dean Yendel was the rider when she ran in a stakes race at Morfordville, finishing out of a place. You got the call, you hightailed it to Adelaide, you won the Group 3 Auraria stakes on Suppressor, and she just bolted in that day. It was a great Oaks trial, and then came the big one. How were the nerves? Yeah, um, I actually... I actually wasn't as nervous as what I thought I would be. Um, I was really confident. It's a really weird feeling to have. Um, I never get very confident in any ride or any race because I know how much can go wrong. Um, even like not only in the race, I know what can go wrong, but even the horse's preparation or the, you know, its last gallop could be upside down or anything. Like there's just so mm. many factors mm. of why a horse can't win rather than why it can win, mm. and that has me always in that mindset that, you know, you, you can't ever be too confident. But for some reason, I just had this feeling that she was going to win and that um, she was going to run well and all I had to do was steer her. And if I didn't steer her well, well, it wasn't meant to be. And for some reason, I just had that really good, strong mindset um, going into the race. And I don't know why that happened or what or what was upon me on that day. And um, I just enjoyed the, the whole day. I enjoyed the build-up. I galloped her on the Tuesday morning before it down at Warnerville. She worked terrific and I was just excited all week. Um, and it, was, it made it really enjoyable that I was like that rather than shitting myself and worrying the whole time. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and I sort of just thought, well, you just got to jump out, enjoy the ride, and if the gaps come, she's going to run well. And if she runs well, she's a chance of winning. And mm. I just kept telling myself that every time that, you know, a little bit of self-doubt come in or mm. or a little, all the nerves started to come and once the gates opened, everything that I told myself would happen happened and uh, oh, a yeah, little, little gap come at the top of the straight and mm. she shot through there and, uh, yeah, it's mm. it's pretty life-changing, a group one win, because mm. that's why that's why we do it, um, to, to, to compete at, at the best and the top level and, to say that I was successful at that, you know, it's pretty special. And um, I don't care. Like people say, oh, especially for what you've been through, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I've been through it. Mm. It's just it's just being a, a jockey to the side. You're a group one winning jockey. And um, oh, there's a lot better riders than me in the jockey's room that haven't that haven't won a group one. Yeah, so my word. Mm. For, for me to win one at such a young age, it, it, I'm so grateful and it's such a privilege and, I'd love to get another one and uh, make sure everyone knows it's not a fluke. Yeah, you'll get another one, mate. It's only a matter of time. Now, before we leave Witchy Proof, this was the scene of your best ever day at the races in November 2016. It was a seven-race card. You won six of them, including the cup on your old favourite Viandon. And to add to the thrill, your dad trained five of your six winners. How good was that? Yeah, it was a big day. Um, and just for the people that are listening, Witchy Proof is a pretty special race day for the Coffee Clan. Um, my mum's from Berrawillock, my father's from Birchup, and they're both about 40 minutes from Witchy Proof. And Berrawillock and Birchup don't have racetracks. Mm. So the local race meeting for the area um, in the Mallee, which is where these small country towns are from, is Witchy Proof Cup Day. Um so since I was a kid, I've been visiting Witchy Proof Cup Day and the coffee family, we have a marquee there and dad's a, dad's a part of a family of 10. He's got uh, 
two sisters, uh, eight brothers, uh, seven brothers, and all the cousins and everybody. They get to the witchy proof races, and uh, ever since I was a kid, dads wanted to win races at witchy proof and wanted to win a witchy proof cup. And um, mm. the day that he trained uh, five winners was also the day he won his first witchy proof cup. Mm. Um, and witchy proof, you know, they're small fields, not a lot of prize money. She's a pretty country old show, but there wouldn't be many race days or race wins that I reckon me and Dad would swap at the time. Like the feeling, mm. it was just like nothing could go wrong. All our family was there. And we were putting on a real clinic, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was a pretty, it was a pretty special day. And you know, people would go, "Oh, it's only witchy proof." It it, it didn't matter. It was <laughs> it was the fa- it was the family being there, yeah. the horses performing, and winning a witchy proof cup where dad would have been going to the witchy proof races since he was a kid. Mm. And I'd been going to them since as long as I could remember in a pram. So mm. uh, it was a ripping day. And <laughs> uh, I, I've won, I've been lucky enough to ride good horses and win some nice races. And that day at Witchy Proof is right up there, yeah. probably mainly because it was with Dad. Mm, of course. By G. Vianden was a great old country cups horse. He won the Witchy Proof twice. He won the Nil Cup twice. He won a Burham beat. He won a Great Western. And perhaps the most memorable of all, Harry, was the Hanging Rock Cup on Australia Day when you wore those spectacular colours of the Australian flag. Yeah, we had him we had him rocking. Um he was in a real he was in a real zone, the old horse, but well, he wasn't blessed with a lot of ability. He just he just tried really hard and mm. He got into a patch of form that he just kept fronting up in them old country cup races and he, he'd, uh, he'd spin around and, and get the goods and he took us on a pretty good ride. Um, we, had a, we had a good group of owners in him. We all had a lot of fun and he, he actually won country horse of the year in, in yeah. Victoria and mm. um, it's a night that mum and dad uh, traditionally always go to um, and they've watched – People win awards, and um, it was pretty awesome the night that we got our own award for having buy in and winning all the country cups. So, yeah, rip, ripper of a horse. And it just goes to show you don't need the fastest horse in Australia, don't need all the group ones and all the you know amazing mm. stuff that can go on at the top end to have an amazing time. You can just get an old country cups horse rocking and take him to all the bush joints, and mm-hmm. uh, it can still provide an <laughs> awesome time. So it, it's and, uh, it, w- it was a good story and it was pretty easy for me. I used to just sit on him and uh, and steer because yeah. a couple of times there he was just way too good for him. Yeah, point him in the right direction. <laughs> Dad got Country Trainer of the Year too on one occasion, didn't he? Yeah, he won an award um, yeah down at Flemington uh, a while back mm. um, for being yeah Country Achiever of the Year or something like that. So we went down to Flemington in the dining room and. Mm. Had a bit of a share. That was a good day. It's usually always about me and how good I am um, <laughs> with with our crew. So it was mm. good that Dad um, got recognised for pretty much his whole life's been in racing and um, mm. uh, the Australian Trainers Association and Racing Victoria have made a, a made a award that recognises people that you know are, are good country people that devote their life to racing and. Mm. Um, Dad was the third winner of the award. Um, 
So, you know, it was it was pretty good. And why that is is because of what you spoke about earlier, like being a farrier since he was a kid, um, worked in racing his whole life, been a barrier attendant. And then one of the more important things that he's been known is, is for his um, tutorage and overseeing of young people coming up through the industry. Um, he's had three apprentices who have all one group ones and he's also had a lot of people work underneath him that have gone on to be successful trainers in his own right so a lot of them sort of things don't get measured when you talk about um how successful someone is you only get measured on what you know winners you get but uh mm. dad is an overall um bloke probably has come across pretty well and it was great that he could get that award and mm. be recognized for that you rate a horse called sign off as possibly the best horse you've been on. He'd won seven races before you got to ride him, including a Lexus stakes with Joey Marrera on board, and then he ran fourth in the Melbourne Cup of 2014, won by Protectionist. Now, something must have gone wrong after that, Harry, because he had only one run in the following year. Now, your first ride on him was in a stakes race at Caulfield on Boxing Day 2015. What happened that day? Yeah, he, he won. Um, he was first up off a long break because of injury. The reason I was on him, I was only apprentice at the time. The reason I was on him was because, um, well, Darren, um, I used to ride a lot for him, obviously, and, and I would, he trusted that I would always do what I was told. And mm. they didn't want the horse to have a gut-busting run because he was first up off a long injury. They just wanted him to go back and, and poke around and, and, and finish off and get through the day soundly rather than mm. sit sort of six deep and do anything stupid. Um, mm. Mm. So as I always did, I did what I was told and, and took him to the back and kept him in a nice rhythm and kept him safe and sound and pulled him out at the top of the straight and uh, he just went straight past them all first up off a humongous break at mm. an unsuitable distance. Mm. Um, and he was just an amazing horse. He had an amazing motor beautiful to look at and just had so much untapped potential. And mm. every time you rode him, um, you just get a sense of being unbeatable. He just had so much presence about him. And when you were on him, you felt that too. Like it just made you feel invisible. And mm. unfortunately that day he tested uh, when he won first up, he tested positive to ibuprofen, which was a part of his rehabilitation uh, process for a te- for his um, injuries. Mm. Um, so we lost that race. But uh, later on in the prep, we went on to win the Lord Reams in Adelaide by yeah. uh, six lengths. Group um, three. Yeah, group, group three. three. You and rode him was, there. It was pretty significant because it, mm. um, it qualified him for the um, Melbourne Cup next year. Um, so it was all pretty exciting at the time and unfortunately he got injured um, after the Lord Rams and he never got um, to the Melbourne Cup the, the spring later. But um, at the time, I was riding him in a lot of track work and riding him in race day. And as I said, every time I got on him, you were just wowed. And mm. we, Darren had a lot of lot of good horses at the time. Um, and I've still to this day get to ride, you know, occasionally a nice horse. But um, I've never I've never had one that's given me the feel that uh, sign, off. sign off has since. And mm. uh, I actually worry that maybe maybe I mightn't find one uh, like him again. So, mm. but as I said, a lot of untapped potential, and um, you know, he ran fourth in the Melbourne Cup with Joey Marrera, and as you said, and mm. he was pretty immature at that stage. And 
I dare say, I hope uh, I hope that's not my chance going begging uh, that I never ever get to find another horse like Sinoff. Mm, you will, mate. You will. Now, Harry, uh, you've been riding a lot of horses for the Ma Eustace stable, uh, particularly on the provincial and country tracks. You riding any work for them? I do a lot of um, trials and that for the team. Um, they've got mm. a stable at Ballarat, obviously now, and Swan Hill's still a fair way from Ballarat, but they bring horses to trial at places like Stall, Horsham, Sanan at Ararat. And back when I was riding for Darren, that was my bread and butter. That was my job to go to them tracks and do the trials and gallops that he wanted to. And mm. when Darren, unfortunately, um, got disqualified for what happened with him, I needed a new a new place to um, do my work. And I was really lucky that Karen and Dave um, gave me a role. And Karen said, yeah, if you do the work, We'll give you some rides, but if yeah, if we have no luck, well, it won't end up being what we want it to be, will it? And mm. I thought that was a pretty good way of putting it. And <laughs> lucky, <laughs> lucky enough, we had some luck, and I got some winners. And yeah. uh, we haven't looked back, and they've been really good to me. And mm. really, really f- weird and awkward time when Darren got got done and got disqualified, and I shouldn't be selfish by any means because obviously it's a lot harder for a lot of other people that were involved, but. I sort of put all my eggs in Darren's basket and when he got done, I was I was quite lost and confused and didn't really know what to do or where I was going to go. And mm. when I rang Karen and asked for some, you know, some rides and to see what would happen, you know, anyone can just say, yeah, yeah, we'll see what happens. But mm. to actually go on and do it and then yeah. continue to ride for him years later, I'm really grateful and appreciative of what they've done. And also I get along quite well with Karen and Dave and that's the main thing as well. Mm. Well, my good mate and your great friend, media personality and noted form analyst Dean Lester has been a very good friend during your career and I know you value Dean's consultation from time to time on racing and life. Yeah, that's right. And how I got to deal with Dino a bit was through Darren and um, also Jerry Ryan. So Jerry Ryan um, was, is, is the owner of Sinoff and Jerry's always been pretty good to me, throwing me a bone from here to there and mm. um, just dealing, riding Jerry's horses and Dean Lester being the manager of his horses. You know, you do a little bit through that and also Dean would help Darren out a lot with planning races and doing form and just from a young age, like I only started riding when I was 15. So there is a lot going on in the industry from that young age. It's a lot to take in and Darren – always, always wanted other people to, to help and influence. It was too much for a young kid to take on sometimes. And, mm. um, he, you know, he'd always ask you to ring this person or ring that fellow or ask for guidance. And um, Dean was always a significant figure that um, Darren would like me to speak to for help and guidance. And mm. um, so, as I said, from the age of 15, I was riding and, I started dealing with Dean from probably the age 17 when I started riding in Melbourne Mm. through Darren and um, just seemed to get along with him really well. And I'm a massive racing fan. Um, Mm. I like the races and I like listening to people's opinions and I listen to Dean a lot on the radio and I really rate what he has to say and to then have the opportunity to speak to him one-on-one over the phone and get one-on-one talking and just – general chat as well. Um, mm. It's been awesome for me and uh, can ring him any time, anywhere, and he's happy to have a chat and he usually knows what you want to know. So 
um, pretty pretty good to have that sort of those sort of people in your life because you can't do it all by yourself. Yeah, he's like your dad. He's a man of great wisdom. He was on the podcast recently, maybe three or four months back. Harry, you should scroll back and have a listen. I will, I will. Now, as long as you're associated with a big stable, such as the Ma Eustace camp, something might slip through the cracks in a Group 1 race during the spring, particularly one of those lightweight horses. Uh, because you can ride at a pretty handy weight. Yeah, well, you I, that's what I'm hoping so. Um, it's probably the spring of opportunity, this one, for fella, like a fellow like myself who's a bit of a fringe rider. Um, you know, you have your stable city riders that, you know, are always getting the top ten rides in every race in town, and, mm. and you've got someone like myself that's a fringe rider, you know, you good enough for the city but you don't quite get the opportunity so you're back to the bush and you're riding good horses in the bush and mm. every weekend you're making that decision do I ride in Melbourne or do I stay in the bush and um, I just think this this spring with um, you know a few suspensions going on and also the New South Wales riders and in other interstate riders not being able to come it opens up avenues mm. for people like myself for opportunities and then on the other hand I also can ride light and as you said, I'm connected to some pretty big stables. So hopefully there's an opportunity there. Um, but you can only do the work and hope it comes. You can't push too hard and uh, whatever uh, whatever happens, I'll grab it with both hands and make the most of it. And finally, I, I asked you on the phone a few days ago to name the jockey who has most inspired you over the last 10 years and you unhesitatingly nominated Damien Oliver. Yeah, uh, I don't really know why. I just think he's the greatest. Um, mm. And I just uh, – it's amazing to be riding with him. Like as a kid growing up, he just won everything. And then you you start riding yourself and you're riding against him and he's still winning everything. And I just think um, we don't really rec- we don't really give him enough recognition for how good he is. And I know people will say, oh, yes, we do. But mm. it's amazing sometimes when people stop riding or any sportsman stops doing – and competing, they actually get rec- recognised for how good they were rather than how good they are in the present. And mm. um, I think when Ollie's gone, we won't. it'll take till then that we realise how good he actually is. So um, it might be uh, all right if he did pull the pin because there'd be some nicer rides getting around and we wouldn't have to beat him. But <laughs> yeah. when you uh, when you ask me who the best is and um, who mm. we look up to, I think it's hard not to go past who I consider one of the greatest of all time. And, mm. yeah, that's Ollie. You've been an ornament to the racing industry, Harry Coffey, and an inspiration to many in the first decade of your chosen career. I hope the next decade brings you great success and great joy. You've earned it. Thank you, mate. No, you're, uh, it's a privilege to be on um, your podcast as well. I, as you said before, Dean, you had Dean Lester on and I was talking to Dean the other day and he said, Young blokes like yourself don't realise how big a deal John Tapp is. He said you should be very privileged to uh, to be on the John Tapp show. So I understand how much it means to be interviewed by you. So thank you for ringing up and uh, allowing me to tell my story, John. Harry, the privilege has been all mine. Thanks very much for your time, mate, and uh, you've been on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Good luck, Harry Coffey. 
The English Bloodstock team believes the catalogue for the 2021 Ready to Race sale is the best ever. The amended date for the sale is Tuesday, October 26, commencing at 11am. 185 two-year-olds have been catalogued by some of Australasia's most influential stallions with a number of exciting new sires represented. Most importantly, these youngsters have been prepared by some of the most capable breeze-up experts in the Southern Hemisphere. The breeze-up sessions are in full swing in Australia and New Zealand and you can access a high-quality video of each and every workout on the English website within 48 hours of the gallop. At your leisure, you can make an assessment of tractability, attitude, action and potential ability of the two-year-olds of your choice. Over 400 individual winners have come from this sale since 2015 and between them, they've accumulated more than $60 million in prize money. For your hard copy of the catalogue, email catalogue at english.com.au or contact a member of the English Bloodstock team on 9399 7999. Remember, the 2021 English Ready to Race sale will be held on October 26th.